Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Mike Boyd. He's a Singapore-based Australian entrepreneur, CEO and investor. Mike is the co-owner and CEO of Vroom Group, founder of ProSura Insurance and investor at Mudbrick Capital. He's the host of the Business of Family podcast and is an active member of YPO.org or the Young Presidents Organization. Mike Boyd, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Tim, Paul. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you on. I think the thing that I, I first saw, because uh, this, this I would use as an example of the amazing networking power of Twitter. I came across one of your posts, I think, about family businesses, family-run businesses via a former uh, guest we've had on the show, Stephen Wilkinson. You don't happen to know Stephen, do you? No, I don't. It must just be a friend of a friend of a friend. On But it's, on the- it's, it's sort of a spirit, spiritual kin, I suspect. But, everybody I mean, knows, everyone in the world knows Stephen <laughs> Wilkinson in one way or another. Everybody. <laughs> Sounds Sorry, like I should know Stephen Wilkinson. <laughs> well, I, I think at some point, I, I, I guarantee at some point your paths will probably cross. So guarantee probably. There you go. How's, how's, that, that's, how's that for a get out? <laughs> but basically, Steve, Stephen, we've had on the show a few times now. He's very much in, involved with the sort of small business ownership, nurturing, mentoring type you know, side of things. So there seemed like a sort of an obvious overlap, if you like, in sort of interests. But that was that was the thread anyway that, that caught my attention. So... I mean, before we get on to the, the, the family business thing, do you want to just say, sort of give us a praise of sort of who you, were, who you are and how you got there? Yes, of course. So um, I'm actually uh, an Aussie based in Singapore these days. Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I would describe myself as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I own and run a, a few businesses, the largest of which is a car rental comparison website. Uh, it's called vroomvroomvroom.com.au, ah. or in your part of the world, it would be vroomvroomvroom.co.uk. Um, less well-known in the UK, but we're the largest uh, comparison site for car rental in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, Australia and New Zealand are our two biggest markets for leisure travel, and anyone that wants to find a great deal and compare prices with Hertz, Avis, Budget, Enterprise, that sort of thing, is what we do. And um I've been running that business since I got involved in a turnaround effort uh, almost 10 years ago, and uh, this is now its 20th year of operation, which is a very long uh, time for an internet-based business. And uh, complementary to the Vroom car rental business, I founded an insurance business, uh, which is actually car rental insurance, funnily enough, and uh, founded that in 2014, and it's also the market leader in our part of the world. So... um, that's sort of what I do as a day job. And then uh, on the side, I, I run uh, Mudbrick Capital, which was um, our family holding company uh, where we'd make some private investments. And uh, in recent years, that's become a little bit more public and a little bit more sophisticated in terms of uh, talking to people about what we're up to. And and we look at all sorts of alternative investments in that space. So um, that's sort of the the background, and then the family business stuff we can talk about separately. That's a a passion project which I've uh, started up recently. How, how have the car rental and, and insurance businesses fared during coronavirus, Mike? Yeah, <laughs> touchy subject. Um, I mean, being in the travel industry, of course, we were hit hard and hit early. 
Uh, we saw the early signs of the virus having an impact in late February. Uh, we have quite a bit of business outbound out of Asia into markets like Australia, New Zealand, the UK and the US. And uh, that early sign was showing that that, that business was down 30% uh, in late Feb. And then uh, as we came into early March, we were seeing uh, that accelerating. And I think it was the the first or the second week of March, we were um, running all sorts of risk assessments and, and modeling our business and our cash flows. And we effectively stress tested the business at three different levels. One was a sustained reduction at about uh, 75% of what we expected to do, uh, a 50% and uh, 25% of what we had budgeted. So we're sort of fairly confident in our three different stress tests. And uh, within a week of completing those stress tests, they were completely obliterated when uh, Australia and New Zealand both shut their borders on the same weekend. We went from uh, being at about 70% capacity to being at zero overnight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd like to think that we were reasonably well prepared, but no business is prepared to go to zero. Sure. So, um, you know, tough times in uh, in the second half of March, and we had to make some pretty drastic uh, decisions and um, that ultimately led to about 60% of our global workforce uh, leaving us in the first week of April, which was incredibly tough but uh, necessary. Yeah. And we put ourselves uh, in a position to sustain ourselves on our cash reserves for at least 12 months with no income. And uh, we we're fortunate to be a private business that's very well capitalized and, um, and had reasonable cash reserves that uh, we could actually do that. Do you think that uh, one thing that will perhaps be a lasting impact of coronavirus is that companies, perhaps particularly small companies, will become extremely averse to taking on significant amounts of debt? Look, I think so. Um, you know, I'm seeing a number of private deals at the moment, and unfortunately, I can't elaborate on them too much on the podcast uh, because they're still getting done. But certainly, when I look into our industry and our competitors, um, not all of them will make it. You know, there are smaller players there. There, there are others around that didn't have the cash reserves or the positioning that we had. And uh, of course, you know, we're all friendly competitors, and we've reached out to wish each other well in these difficult times. And um, that there's certainly others that are doing it far tougher, whether the, whether or not that's their debt position um, or just the ability to sustain relatively no income for such a long period of time. And what we've seen in Australia in particular is, um, you know, on the global stage, it's a country that's responded incredibly well um, and has been held up as an example, but it's just experiencing second wave um, infections or a second wave spike now. And uh, a couple of states within the country have been locked down again. And uh, all that does is zap confidence, is zap demand out of the market. And when you're a travel business that relies on people moving around, whether or not that's domestically and interstate or international, uh, as soon as people just say, well, you know, I'm going to, to hang around in my own backyard, uh, there's just no business at all. So I think it really is a waiting game. We have to wait it out. Um, and I think that the return to any form of uh, real business will be in 21. Are you chomping at the bit looking at opportunities or are you treading very carefully? Fair to say we're, uh, we're looking at opportunities uh, right now. Uh, as I sort of alluded to, there's a couple of deals going on that we're involved with mm. at the moment where um, there'll definitely be some 
consolidation in our space as well as adjacent industries. And so we're sort of being extremely cautious because, you know, our, our core business is still uh, at risk. You know, it's all based on assumptions about when we think the market will recover. But at the same time, I like to believe that you can never waste a good crisis. And uh, if there is opportunity, you have to make a, a calculated bet and um, hopefully emerge from the, the crisis bigger and stronger as a result of uh, perhaps picking up some other assets. So that's definitely on the cards for us. You're based in Singapore personally, Mike. I am, yes. In in uh, otherwise normal times, I would be on a plane uh, almost every week. And uh, Singapore is a much more centrally located hub for me to travel the world. And it's sort of part and parcel with owning a travel business that we book car rental all over the world. Our customers are international, our uh, employees are international, and we operate uh, around the clock in all sorts of time zones. So um, in a usual year, I would clock, you know, in excess of 100 segments and um, and spend all sorts of time in the air. So this has been quite a, quite a personal adjustment, having not been on a plane since February. Every, everything we hear this side of the, the world is implies that Singapore's had a pretty good crisis. Whereas the UK, for one, uh, the UK government may have done something right, but if it has, I'm not quite sure what that that is. Uh, we've just like we've sort of hit, fallen off the wrong tree and hit every branch on the way down. So and communicated uh, it badly as well. It <laughs> so what 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 is it about what 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 did Singapore do that 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 has has led to such a you know, comparatively good outcome? Do you think? Well, look, there's a few uh, structural factors to begin with. Singapore's not very big, and yep. it's an island nation. So uh, if you want to lock it down, you can do so and do it pretty hard. Um, of course, it, Singapore Changi Airport is one of the busiest airports in the world, and uh, making the decision to shut that airport was not taken lightly. Uh, but Singapore also has an incredibly compliant population. Right? We've actually just been through an election in the last 10 days here where the government was re-elected and it's been the same government in power since uh, independence for the last 60 years. And uh, they were re-elected with a super majority of 85% or something. So um, when the government says to do something, uh, the, the majority of the population does it and, and doesn't try and negotiate or push back or, or uh, push their luck. And that's and that's despite the passing of Lee Kuan Yew. Correct, correct. And it's in fact uh, his son is still the Prime Minister mm. of Singapore, and uh, he was due to retire, I think, uh, this year around around the election. He's just extended that to see out the crisis. Um, but look, in terms of Singapore, they were incredibly proactive um, and fast moving. Even uh, to this day, it's still relatively uh, strict. We went through what was nearly two months of circuit breaker measures where we were restricted to home, um, wearing masks, absolutely all hospitality, uh, retail, malls, uh, everything except essential services were shut for two months, which was incredibly challenging. And I think the GDP data has just come out recently that in uh, the second quarter, it was down 46% wow. in the Singapore economy. It's just wow. enormous numbers, just crippled the economy. Um but uh, and as a result, a lot of expats and and others that would otherwise be like me have left uh, the country, hundreds of thousands of them, um, because a lot of them were based here. Like me, it's a hub to do business within the Asia Pacific region. Um, uh, 
Uh, but look, to, to this day, we're, we're back to a level of normal. We can't leave the house without a mask at mm. all. But most businesses and services who survived have reopened. Um, we're restricted to small groups of five and, and uh, things like that. But uh, we can still get about and live our lives. Do you see, it's a difficult question to answer, maybe impossible, but do you see this, the, the coronavirus situation being a, a, a game changer or, or merely a sort of a, a significant short-term blip that will be a rounding error for the world in the, in the, in the course of history? Um, look, I, I sort of fall in the, in the camp of people that say it's n- not a new normal. There yeah. is no normal. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly some changes will be permanent. Uh, but I wouldn't go so far as to tell you what those permanent changes are going to be. I think it's- because nobody nobody can know what they are. The, the, re- the reason I ask is there's a, there's a philosopher here, John Gray, who's one of my fa- my personal favourite sort of public thinkers and writers. He he writes exceptionally well, and he was on a a, a podcast possibly unheard um, within the last few days, and he said, I think what he said was, if I remember it correctly, was that that coronavirus is is a is a bigger deal than say the fall of the berlin wall in 1989 in terms of its potential impact on politics and everything else it's extraordinary and i think the the difference is unlike a lot of other global events is that this one truly is global there's not a not a part of the world that it hasn't affected uh you know even for the nations that have done really well and either eradicated or or greatly contained the virus they're massively impacted by the loss of trade and and free movement of people as well. So I think that, um, you know, if we're talking about capital markets as well, I mean, when have we ever seen such money printing and stimulus going on? It's, mm. it's unbelievable. And there's all sorts of opinions on that. And, and I'm sure you two gentlemen are far more qualified to comment on it than I am. But, you know, it makes for quite an unpredictable world when – you know, I think part of the reason for the stimulus is to try and add some level of predictability to normalise things, and no one, no one really knows how to respond to that. You've referred to the money printing without putting you on the spot, or certainly not trying to you know, reveal any state secrets. To what extent does do the monetary metals feature in your your worldview as a let's say as a private investor, if at all? Not a great deal. Yeah. You know, it, it reinforced a view that uh, those that are playing in the public markets. Um, are smarter than me, <laughs> full stop. And um, if, if there was ever a time to stay away, it, it's now. So, you know, from a private perspective, we have some funds under management for the family, but they're managed by, uh, in fact, my cousin runs a, a small private fund and does exceptionally well. And, uh, you know, that's often my my benchmark. You know, if, if I don't think I'm any smarter than that, uh, you know, I need to stay away and, and mm. circle of competence. So, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've got a, a combination of street smarts and book smarts, I like to say. And uh, whether it's business or real estate or um, other alternative assets, that's things that I can wrap my head around and bring mm. a great deal of experience and knowledge to. But uh, the public markets, you know, are too scary for me. Did you have a mentor, Mike, or how did you learn? To be an entrepreneur. It's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say I had a mentor. I've probably had a great number of mentors that I've modelled throughout my life, but I, I didn't learn to be an entrepreneur. I was almost a uh, a born entrepreneur and frustrated by it. My entrepreneurial journey started 
at least from my memory, around the age of 11, selling lost golf balls that I used to fish out of the pond and uh, <laughs> clean up and sell back to people for, you know, a dollar or, or 50 cents. Um, We're getting shades of Buffett here. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're true. You know, this is the street smarts that I rely on, <laughs> lost golf balls. And, um, but, you know, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. I didn't have that influence to model, but I just had this, this inclination, this drive, this, uh, you know, I was always setting up a, a, a shop front, uh, at home playing with mum. And, you know, I remember I used to borrow her fruit bowl, uh, and, and put it on display in my shop. Then I'd borrow her bowl of loose change and make that my cash register. And then I'd <laughs> invite her to the shop to come and buy fruit with additional cash that she had to come. This, 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 is, sounding, this is beginning to sound a bit like QE, if you don't mind me saying say, so. That's, is that <laughs> the central <laughs> bank's work? <laughs> So I'd sell her an apple, keep the money that she gave me for that, and I'd keep the entire loose change. <laughs> fruit, fruit, fruit bowl nomics. Exactly. I'm still looking for a business that's as profitable as that one. Brilliant. But do you think do you think that schools are perhaps deficient in not inculcating any real sort of wide spirit of interest in uh, entrepreneurialism? That would be my experience. Yeah. Look, I had to find it myself. Um, it, going th- all the way through high school, I couldn't find. Uh, people like me is the way I used to describe it. Um, found it very frustrating. You know, got, got along with other people, could be social enough. But, you know, when I was 17 or 18 and and my mates were going out to the pub and having a great old time, I would do that too. But but I'd get over it very quickly and then want to come home and spend my Friday nights building my business or figuring out how to um, build my own website because at the time I was running a party hire business uh, as I started university selling beer kegs and things. So, you know, there was always a, a bigger mission, a bigger drive. And, um, and I couldn't find people like me. And, and when I was then at university, I actually founded a not-for-profit organization called the Hive Network in Brisbane. It was something that existed in Melbourne and I brought it to Brisbane. And it was literally a once a month get together um, for entrepreneurs, mainly students and young people, but we would invite one prominent entrepreneur from the community to come along and tell their story. And we'd host it in a pub on a Tuesday night. There was no cost of entry. There was no cost of venue hire. It was just basically a soapbox for someone to come and tell their story and we'd buy a beer and listen to it. But it was really an excuse to get interesting people in the room. And um, that was a turning point for me uh, in my entrepreneurial journey because not only could I bounce ideas off other people, but I was the guy organizing the event. I was the guy up there on the microphone introducing the guest speaker and obviously uh, reaching out, trying to find new guest speakers every month. And a few of these prominent entrepreneurs who came and, and were generous with their time took a little bit of a liking to this young guy that was putting all of this effort into the hive uh, you know, for no financial reward. And they took me under their wing. And you know, you talk about mentors, it absolutely propelled my learning journey uh, to spend some time with some very established entrepreneurs. And um, over the space of sort of three years, I spent uh, just as much time outside of university learning about business as I did in it. And um, it was formative in my journey to date. Are there any, are there any um, books that you would recommend on the, uh, on the topic of business for people who might want to take, take a broader interest in maybe taking the plunge? Well, look, I always enjoyed the great personal development books and, and you can't go past the classics like Think and Grow Rich or How to Win Friends and Influence People, that sort of yeah. thing. But 
In terms of entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurship and, and great storytelling, there's a book called The Knack, uh, which I think is fantastic. It's it, written by a, a guy called Norm Brodsky, uh, who was a, a writer in, uh, I think it was Inc. Magazine. But no, look, I'd recommend The Knack. It's a fantastic entrepreneurial storytelling book uh, with a number of lessons wrapped up within it as well. And it's probably a book that I read in my mid-20s that I found really resonated and I, I'm still recommending it to people today. Was, was he an entrepreneur himself or was he, was he telling the stories of people who'd made it work? No, no. He was an entrepreneur himself yeah. and a great storyteller. Uh, from memory, he, he built one of the largest self-storage businesses in New York City. I think it was document storage and uh, found new ways to innovate in terms of how much uh, they could fit on a per square meter basis by finding a, a new filing system to stack them higher in the warehouse and all these sorts of things and, you know, branding, marketing, positioning and uh, retaining employees, building culture, all of those things that are somewhat soft skills, but incredibly important for an entrepreneur to know and understand outside of just pure sales and generating business. What do you think makes a good business opportunity, like gets you fired up to say, actually, I, I, I think this is, we should go with this or we shouldn't go with this. Do you look for something that is existing and working or do you look for completely blue sky where there's nobody there? Well, these days I work in, uh, in the tech space and I'm a little bit of a contrarian uh, and I, I say that cautiously, but in the tech space these days, everything's venture capital driven, or at least the headlines are, you know, you, you, you open the news and it's someone celebrating, raising the latest round of finance, uh, rather than the headline being someone, um, profiting with the greatest profit margins or, or generating the greatest return or EBITDA or whatever it might be. And, you know, I really fall into the latter camp where I absolutely love to own and operate profitable technology companies. You know, and one of the things I said a few months ago when uh, coronavirus hit was I'm so fortunate that we are not venture backed. Mm. You know, we're a privately owned company. We have no debt. There are two shareholders. I'm one of them. And we had millions of dollars in the bank. So, you know, you talk about rainy day and, uh, and we're best placed to see it through. But if we were growth at all costs, trying to squeeze the nth uh, performance metric out of it in order to please our investors who need to return their fund within seven years, it would be a completely different trajectory that we are required to be on. And it would also mean that this business would have been sold probably 10 or 12 years ago, right? We're, we're in our 20th year now. That doesn't happen in a venture back yeah. space. Mm. So in terms of the businesses that I look for and, and what I like to invest in at Mudbrick Capital when I'm looking at uh, opportunities is what I describe as digital intangibles. So I love a business where uh, it, it has incredibly high profit margins, which is often software related or, or a digital service. Um, something that is highly scalable and doesn't require any physical input. So I'm not a big fan of e-commerce, uh, although it's a huge category that a lot of people do very well out of. I'm not very much interested in in stock on shelves or in warehouses or perishable goods or dealing with shipping or freight or anything like that. There's this there's this niche of digital intangibles where most of the time you're either selling a one-time download, a subscription or some sort of confirmation email. And let me give you some examples. 
The most common one is software as a service, which everyone is incredibly familiar with. The, the lesser thought of services are like the businesses that I own today. So Vroom 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 is a comparison website. And what we're effectively in the business of selling is a confirmation email with a booking number for Hertz or Avis, right? Our system connects to their system. We lock in a price for you. We generate a voucher and we give you a booking number or a reservation number. And that's it, yeah. right? And the cost of us to send an email is nothing. Mm. It's infinitely scalable. We didn't ship any product. We didn't have any returns. We didn't have any breakage, right? It's just a digital intangible. And similarly, with the insurance business that we own, we're also in the business of selling a confirmation email. But again, it's a policy number that we're sending to the customer. And effectively, it's a promise, right? You've paid us X dollars and we've insured you with with this policy number. And if there's a claim, call us and we'll pay it out. Uh, but again, uh, infinitely scalable. The insurance business is, is wonderfully profitable when it works. And um, if we can build more of those types of digital services or software as a service, uh, or even one-time downloads, there's oftentimes a, uh, a compliance regime in an industry. And this is very B2B or very niche, but you know, once a year you have to submit your tax return and you have to comply to a certain degree, or once a year you need to prove that you're a sophisticated investor, as we called in Australia, or an accredited investor. Yeah, yeah. Excellent business recently. Actually, there's a great example. In the US, I believe in some states, they recently changed the law where you have to prove that you're an, an accredited investor. So you actually have to have a lawyer or, or someone suitably qualified assess your net worth and your earning potential and your assets and say, yes, you meet the criteria. Here's a certificate. Now you can go and invest in that private fund as an LP or, or whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. So I've seen a website spin up that has a, a law firm or a lawyer sitting behind it but it's basically created a productized service where for $49 or $99, you click and you buy your certificate. You upload a few documents and bank statements. It's all you know, private and secure and all those sorts of things. And within a few minutes, you get a certificate to download. And you know, infinitely scalable, terrific digital intangible business that I wish I'd thought of. Do you think, um, I mean, what I'm getting from, from, from what you're saying is, firstly, that there's an element of, just basically reacting to to gaps in markets. You know the story that I've heard you tell about. You know the 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 the, the beer keg businesses. What why why can't I celebrate my eighteenth birthday with hiring some hiring a you know keg of beer or whatever? And and nobody was providing a service, so you step in and do it yourself. And after that, it's then an issue of problem solving as well. And then hit, when you talk about you know the the demerits of of things like venture capital and sort of big, big capital, if you like, for want of a better phrase. It, it seems to me that as part of this, this sort of brave new world order of, of sort of post-COVID-19 life, big, big in, in the sense of big capital isn't, I think the scales are going to fall from, from some people's eyes. Um, I, I, although I'm, I'm not necessarily a pessimist by nature, it strikes me that globalization just, just, just ran into a brick wall. So all of this sort of ever increasing size and scale and globalization and just in time and you know inventory management all that stuff is 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 old news now there's going to be a just a terrific amount of onshoring and reshoring going on and in the context of capital that or, or investing businesses that suggests to me that 
the business might actually get smaller rather than bigger, which is probably a good thing. Because I think, I think in many senses, investing, which is ultimately a people business, it ought, it ought to be more of a cottage industry than a, you know, the few Leviathans just duking it out. Look, I think it's a fair statement. There's definitely going to be shifts to globalization. And, you know, I see that in a big way here in Singapore because it's a, an economy that's entirely reliant on trade of all, all sorts and shapes. It's a major shipping hub. It's a major uh, intellectual property hub. It's a major banking and finance hub. And, uh, you know, they're quite concerned if they can't attract talent and capital and commerce to trade here in Singapore if people no longer have a need to, to do that within the region. Um, that's a big shift for this country. And in terms of investing and, and qualifying what you're saying, you're absolutely right. You know, I like to find a problem and solve it. Uh, perhaps it's not so much blue sky thinking, but I like making money rather than speculating. Mm. And, uh, and I think that you also have to appreciate the point of the cycle that we're in. And I don't just mean this in pure economic cycle, but if you have a look at the world at the moment, particularly in the startup space and venture capital space or even um, the private equity, the world is awash with capital. There is no shortage of very, very cheap money. And as soon as you say tech or SaaS or you know, some sort of subscription revenue, the multiples on these things are ridiculous. And so, you know, if you go for a blue sky thinking approach, one in 100 hit it really big. Uh, you know, five in 100 probably create a level of sustainable business, but they chose a venture cap, uh, venture capital model, which doesn't support sustainable business models because they want a return of capital. Mm. Um, and, and so there's another 90 odd percent where you can actually build a fantastic business that's well beyond what I would consider a lifestyle business. You know, this is not, this is not a small play thing. This is mm. serious money, but it's something where you can, play for the long term, invest in your people, um, invest in your community, build an enduring business, which is what I'm passionate about and and, and the segue into the family business topic as well. Yeah. As I said, I'm a bit of a contrarian in the tech space. I like to use technology to solve problems, but I don't think technology is the be all and end all. And if I was going to compete uh, in the software as a service space with an idea from scratch, I would only do it if I had a, a pre-vetted customer lined up who said, if you build it, I'll pay, right? Because mm. I like to solve problems. If you want to do the blue blue ocean, blue sky thinking, you go to Silicon Valley, you take a ridiculous amount of capital and you have a crack. That's not really the game I'm playing. So, so tell us a bit more about the, the how you got interested in family businesses. Yeah, so it's a bit interesting because I don't actually come from a family business myself or an entrepreneurial family. Uh, but... I've always had this fascination with companies that endure, that 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 play the long game, as I said. And um, what I've most been interested in is multi-generational wealth creation and preservation. I'm fascinated by the stories of families that have gone three, four, five, six generations and still managed to not only retain the capital but grow it, diversify across the generations uh, and remain relevant. To me, that's an enormous uh, challenge and uh, and a huge accolade for those that pull it off. And it's not necessarily just one family business that's been around for 200 years, although it may well be. Uh, oftentimes, these evolve into family enterprises where there's spin-offs, there's multiple businesses, there's real estate holdings, there's assets, there's other things. 
Um, and I guess the counterpoint to all of this is that the vast majority of multi-generational wealth is lost at or around the third generation. Why, why, do, why do you think that is, that shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations? Why is that? Why, why do you think that is? Well, the key, the key premise is one of value systems, right? The founding generation are often, uh, you know, entrepreneurial. They're wealth creators in some way, shape or form. They generate enormous wealth and go from nothing to something. And the second generation, the children of the founding generation, usually grow up while that's still going on. They grow up seeing the founding generation working really hard, building the business, and probably evolving along the wealth curve uh, with them in their lifetime. The children are growing up uh, with more and more capacity as the parents are more successful. And then by the time grandchildren come around and the founding generation are perhaps uh, starting to pass or get very, very old, the grandchildren have not seen their parents work to the same extent. They haven't grown up with the same influence. They, they perhaps, um, you know, they've all been through private school now. They've had their their education paid for. They've had the annual ski holiday. They they fly off and have their summers on the yacht or whatever whatever it might be. There's different levels of wealth and different different examples. But the biggest shift is generational value systems mm. and the, that's the reason why it very rarely works beyond the third generation. By the time the third generation or the grandkids get hold of the money, they usually lose it, not instantly, but within their lifetime. And it's the same exact example of why um, lottery winners usually end up broke within a couple of years after winning the lottery, mm. right? Because they're the same people that don't have the finance value system with how to manage money, invest it wisely, how to say no to people who ask for it, how not to be, you know, aspire to be an angel investor and give money to everybody that asks for it um, or spend it all on toys. And so it's the same thing with grandkids or great grandkids that inherit a great deal of wealth, but have no idea what to do with it. Do you think so it comes down to what Taleb would probably call skin in the game in that the entrepreneur founder builds a business with his own blood, sweat and tears and the last thing he's likely to want to do is just dissipate it away. Whereas if it's not your business because you didn't make it in the first place, what do you care? So you've got less natural respect for the capital, you know, the, the capital accumulation and wealth creation process per se. That's right. And, and, you know, this new project that I've embarked on, the business of family, I'm researching what makes the difference. What makes the difference with families who do succeed and prosper beyond the third generation. And one of the key things beyond uh, simple value systems is the education of uh, family members around the value of a dollar or the value of a quid and having family members work to earn their own way, even if they don't need to, right? Even if the family is so incredibly wealthy, nobody has to work for generations. That's actually the fastest path to lose it. And it's also the fastest path to spoiled rich kids who end up depressed, anxious, turning to drugs, alcohol, and all the other nasties because they lose the self-identity. They have no purpose. They, they don't know how to strive because they've never had to. And so that, that's the other side of things I'm fascinated by as well. When you talk about the business of family rather than the family business, you're talking about the entire family enterprise, including how do you raise well-rounded children of wealth? And how do you steward your capital from generation to generation, remaining relevant, making 
uh, necessary investments because, of course, no business also survives without changes, as we're seeing with another global crisis right now. Innovation is required. Risk-taking is required. But how do you do it in a, in a way that makes sense? And then the other component to all of this, which I think is, is really challenging but really interesting, is when you get into the family dynamics part of it. So with wealthy families, how do they contemplate and deal with things like uh, divorce of a grandchild or the second marriage or a stepchild or um, prenups and postnups and things like that? Um, everyone starts out with a very crystal clear idea of family wealth. I want it to stay in the family. But no one or, or very few pause to actually write down who is the family? How do you define the family? Can you marry into it? Can you marry into it a second time? Do uh, do stepchildren inherit wealth as well? And this is where things come undone really, really quickly. And so uh, the counterpoint, the, the, the best cases of this is multi-generational families who succeed in passing from generation to generation do so with intention. Mm. They implement family governance structures they have a family council, which is similar to a board of directors. They often have a family constitution. They have annual meetings. They have uh, policies and procedures written down, agreeing things like how is a family member who works in the business remunerated and how does that impact siblings who don't work in the family business? Mm. Trying to preempt the challenges that are going to emerge before they do and having a policy or procedure to deal with it. Do, do they look to mould their, their their children or the, the you know the members of the family who come in who, who are married in? Do they mould them to a role, or do they look at their skill sets and try to fit them within the company? Uh, accordingly, so for example, you or, might, or get them as far away from the company as possible. If well, that's, yeah, because because you might the right approach because you might have somebody who's say artistic and someone who's you know, more like yourself, entrepreneurial. And th there could be a role for, say, if you worked at Lego, if you're artistic, then you could work on one role. But if you're more, say, accounts-driven, there's obviously a role for you there. Or do they try to educate them all to a certain level and where they could just fit in wherever they need to in the company? Great question. So in order to answer this a little more simply, let's make the assumption that we're talking about a family that knows what they're doing and does this well. So rather than uh, a family that loses it all, let's talk about some of the best uh, case studies which I've seen. And, and I need to stress these are the minorities. These are the exceptions. Uh, and this is why I think it's so fascinating to study because most families don't do this. But the examples I see... Families grow faster than businesses. By the time you hit the third generation, which is often called the cousin consortium, the family tree, or, or if you picture it like a pyramid, the family tree starts to compound and grow faster than any family business. And so if you have structured your, your lifestyle around everybody in the family drawing dividends or or some sort of remuneration from the family business because we're so wealthy, by the time you get to the third and fourth generation, there's no money left because it has to be divided so many times. So in terms of determining who works in the family business, who doesn't, molding and, 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 and working out issues of inheritance, the best examples of this are families that see themselves as stewards rather than owners 
of businesses and assets. Their role is simply to look after it for their generation and uh, and nurture or steward those assets through for the benefit of future generations, which typically comes with a few uh, assumptions that, you know, if we inherit great wealth or great assets, we need to not only nurture and steward it, but grow it so that the future generations can benefit. And when we're determining who actually participates in managing the money or working in a creative role or perhaps being a third or fourth generation wealth creator to help us grow the wealth uh, onwards again for future generations. These decisions are typically made by the family council, which again is like a, a board of directors who represent the family and make decisions on its behalf. Because of course, you can't have 40, 50, 80 people on a family council. Typically, you're ending up with six to eight members of the of the family represented on the family council. Some even have independent directors or advisors. Uh, and these stewards are making decisions in line with the vision, mission, and values documented in the family constitution and for the benefit of future generations, not for the benefit of themselves. And that's why I say there is usually typically uh, – very clear procedures around if you work in the family business, your remuneration is benchmarked against uh, standard market rates. And we use an outside recruitment firm to determine that for us. The family doesn't set remuneration standards. That helps siblings and other wider family members who are not involved in the business to accept that that's a fair and reasonable outcome for someone that's working hard to, uh, to work in the family business itself. Um, then there's examples of uh, either bundled or unbundled assets. And this is where it gets very, very complicated, but also unique to each family. A bundled asset is where it's a, a shared asset between the family. And that might be a, f a family compound or a family holiday home or a ski chalet that all of the family are entitled to use. And it's somehow centrally managed to book for different families to use that weekend or for that summer or winter break unbundled uh, assets or an example of those are where individual family members might benefit from from the wealth of the family and this might be an, an education fund right uh, the best example is say grandparents agree that they're going to fund the university education for all of the grandkids but what if one child had four kids and the other child had one kid that means that uh, someone's getting four times the benefit of the education fund than the other now, a lot of policy and procedures go into that saying that unbundled asset is actually supporting the individual. It's an individual benefit for the grandchild. It's not a benefit to the child themselves, not the uh, the family. So it's not four times the benefit. Every grandchild gets the benefit. doesn't matter how many kids you have. You know, so that's a great example of a policy, but another family may see it completely differently. So it's just one example that I've seen. It's, this is a fascinating um, perspective because it, it runs completely counter to the the view of the, the the narrative of the left, which is so much sort of you know un, you know unentitled privileged wealth sloshing around out there. Whereas the argument you're making, which I, I entirely accept, is the number of families that have maintained their wealth and and just kept it over longer the longer term is vanishingly small. It is minutely small. Uh, the vast majority, 70% of all families lose it by the third generation. 
Wow. And and it, it drastically decreases from there. I won't quote you the statistics because I'm sure I'll get it wrong off the top of my head, but it's it's dramatic. Um, and you know, there's actually been some research recently, and I, I quoted this in my um, in my recent email newsletter about the topic. But Malcolm Gladwell discusses in his new book, uh, which is called David and Goliath, some research that's come out actually demonstrating that more money makes parenting easier up to a certain income level mm. at which point it becomes it, it begins to make it harder so as you become increasingly wealthy the ability to raise well-rounded uh, independent children who can strive on their own accord is actually more difficult because you know again if you take the left view all you see is spoiled kids raised by nannies and and housekeepers and and uh, the parents aren't involved and and all. But but that's actually the challenge. You're actually raising inheritors that have never had to work, have never had to strive, have never had to set goals, have never been disappointed, have never had to fail. You know, if they don't turn up to school or if they get in trouble at school or they failed, there's always a phone call made to the principal and it's all smoothed over and somebody buys a new library and it's all good, you know. So this is actually a huge challenge. And paradoxically, they're not connected to the family. They're not close to the, the mother and father because they, you've got other people raising them. Exactly. And so, you know, these these people can be their own worst nightmare. Uh, they they actually bring down their own demise. And so if you're a family of wealth of any means, and so let's bring this back into reality for a minute. Rather than talking about the uber wealthy for a moment, let's just come back to modest wealth and, mm. and say if you are raising your children in an environment of considerably more prosperous means than you were raised yourself, how do you ensure that you raise your kids to the same or similar or better standard than you were raised mm. when wealth starts getting in the way, right? Because all of a sudden, there's a little bit of uh, disposable income that can pay to solve problems. You want a new bike, Billy? You can have the best bike. You don't have to wait two years or wait for your birthday or whatever it is. You can have the best bike. And we we try and give our kids, or I think a lot of us try and give our kids what we didn't have. Or, or, or a better life than we had. But in doing so, we can spoil them. Now, I like to think that there's also a way around that because I've studied some of the wealthiest families I know uh, who have actually raised incredibly well-rounded, mature adult children that are successful in their own right. And I think studying what makes that difference is incredibly interesting. And that's the journey that I'm on. Because you also have to spot the talent within the child because you may have you know you may have a a genius uh, musician there or, or or artist of some kind that has absolutely nothing to do with the business and that that child will be not be served by being sort of pressed into this business that they don't necessarily want to do so you, if you're not close to your children and trying to look at their talents and find the best for them, the best for them might actually be them not being in the company. Exactly right. And, you know, going back to the example of the best families who do this well, typically the the family council sets out that the wealth of the family is actually across the human, intellectual, spiritual, and financial wealth of the family. And what does that actually mean? It means that we care about 
individual happiness and individual success, however it may be defined, and that we're not trying to rule from the grave or impose uh, the founding generation's um, requirements or value system on future generations. There's an element of structure, but there's an element of flexibility as well for individualism. And I think that, you know, again, examples that I've seen talking about an education fund, typically families have policies that say, you know, there's a family bank or there's a there's an education fund that funds education up to a secondary uh, schooling level or up to a tertiary education level, but also defines things like um, trades education or musical or artistic endeavors that also have an education component. The family council considers applications for financial assistance for things like that. And, you know, to show another example, Perhaps there's a grandchild that's entrepreneurial who doesn't want to work in the family business because maybe it's an old school manufacturing firm that, you know, that this young kid's into the tech space, uh, wants to do a startup, wants to build a, a unicorn and, and go off to Silicon Valley. And, and there's a mechanism in place for the grandchild to make an application to the family bank or to the family council laying out their request for financial support or investment in the startup. And the the family council often has rules around that saying, we'll never be the first money in, we'll never be your largest check. Mm. You have to you have to have worked for other people first. You have to have raised money from other people first. And if you successfully do that, we'll match or something to that effect. And it's on commercial terms with a real interest rate. You know, so it's teaching children to strive, but there's still resources there available within a structure that's sustainable this is this is phrase first world problems and i'm sure again those sort of those people inclined to the left would say well this is you know like the world's smallest violin playing just for these people but there was um there was a, a colleague i had and one of the friends she had at business school was the heiress to a a, a global drinks brand fortune you'd know the name of the company and it struck me that that must be a terrible burden to live with as a teenager for example where now, the people that you mix with know the family you come from. And so all the friends you make, you have to ask yourself, well, are they being friends with me or are they being friends with the money that I'm going to inherit? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. That's right. Whether it's the family surname or just being known for being of wealth or going to be of wealth when the inheritance comes through exactly, uh, can be a very, very crippling uh, thing for any individual. And I think, you know, that speaks to this difficulty in raising children of wealth. Um, how do you protect them from it? And, uh, you know, one example is children may have grown up in incredibly wealthy surrounds with, you know, all of the trappings of success, but it's not their money, right? It was their parents' money, uh, if it was their parents' money to begin with, but making the assumption that it was the ski holidays, the summer holidays, the this or that, the fancy education. The, one of the biggest challenges that these um, young adults face is that when they're uh, getting into their late teens, early 20s, perhaps finishing tertiary education, mid-20s, and they begin to separate from the family and try and find their own self-identity, there's often a very rude shock that they can no longer support the lifestyle that they actually grew up with, that they're used to, because it wasn't their money. So unless there's a trust fund or some similar thing that they're drawing on consistently to maintain lifestyle, even though they haven't earned that money, 
they have to actually learn how to, as we said earlier, um, place a value on a dollar and uh, earn their own way because otherwise they do struggle with self-identity, with achievement, with goal setting, with self-esteem and have all sorts of issues. So oftentimes the best thing that parents can do is let them enjoy nice things, but but part of that family council and and annual family meeting process is sharing the vision, sharing the value, sharing the mission of the family, and helping individuals to understand the concept that as they become the next generation, they're becoming the next generation of stewards to take care of this for the next generation. They're not inheriting this as owners to spend as they see as they see fit. And this is the key sort of uh, difference in in how these successful families structure their multi-generational succession plans. Um, It's an incredibly challenging and unique thing to do for each family. Just to look at broader businesses for a moment, and if we say that perhaps the the beginning of the tech boom, whether you put it as early as the 80s or late as the 90s or even later than that. Um, but let's say it was around late 90s, early 2000s. And then we have the kind of, I think from 2015, the latest sort of trends have been in machine learning and Alexa and self-driving cars, which is obviously a longer term trend that that hasn't fully played out yet and and may well have a long way to go. Some uh, of, of my research is pointing towards genetics as being the next big thing. Do you have any instinctive or, or maybe even stronger views on what might be um, some trends that could be very, very big in the future? Mm, it's a great question. And, and I'm not the best speculator, but I would say that uh, genetic engineering, I think, is is fraught with risk and incredibly scary, but it certainly won't uh, stop people trying to design babies with uh, the characteristics and and things that they want. I think I, I immediately think of Hollywood when you say that and, yes. and designer babies. But of course, there's probably you know terrific medical breakthroughs in genetic engineering as well to be found. So, not really my expertise. But if we turn to future technologies uh, and, and what we're seeing, I think right now we're probably 10 to 15 years into the beginning of this concept of software eating the world um and i oh, think i've never that, heard that before that's <laughs> mm, that, that's an interesting phrase it's a great phrase I, I think it was paul graham who said it from y combinator who's a again silicon valley sort of venture capital guy um I, i'm not sure if i'm appropriately accrediting it to him but software eating the world if you google that there's a terrific essay on it and um and it really speaks to how every industry, every business is being touched by software in some way, and also that every business, irrespective of whether or not it's a manufacturer or a, a grocery store or or a traditional tech company, is becoming a software provider in some way. Uh, whether it's from the humble spreadsheet that uh, that has a few macros in it that start to automate simple tasks, um, to receipt management, to inventory management, to uh, you know, upscaled intellectual property that's licensed for royalties and things. There's there's so many industries now that are that are being touched, or every industry is being touched by software. And I think that we're we're still early in that curve, right? So in my world, um, 
Actually, I can give you a, a great example. I'm a member of um, YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and I'm one of the younger members. And I spend a great deal of time with traditional business owners who are my peers in this network. Um, and, and I'm often the uh, the fresher-faced young guy who understands tech, and, and I get all the tech questions. And, you know, I've been touring um, – steel mills, uh, manufacturing facilities, um, chemical conglomerates, um, all sorts of really interesting traditional businesses that are investing in AI, that are investing in machine learning or or bringing, um, for instance, the steel mill was bringing AutoCAD and design engineering to the cloud so that their customers could click and order and robotic arms would start welding and cutting and things within their factory and operations. Every business is being touched by software in some way. So I think that that is a huge trend, which we're only just beginning to get a sense of. And I think that continues for a good number of decades. The other thing that I think we're seeing, uh, again, it's not new, but is still very, very early in the curve is the hardware side of things, the internet of the internet of things. Um, when we say internet of things, a lot of time people think of their Apple watch or maybe a set of connected bathroom scales, or maybe there's an internet connected refrigerator or something like that. But really things are going a lot further. You know, it really was only a decade ago that we started requesting Ubers on our phone as opposed to hailing a, a cab. And, and that's created all sorts of disruption all over the world. Um, but the amount of sensors and, um, data connected to real things, I think is going to be incredible. And in terms of the, the final point, AI, machine learning, it's big beyond my um, qualifications. But one thing I would say is whether it's AI or whether or not it's just software, we're going to see a mass movement towards automation of all sorts of repetitive tasks and processes. It doesn't have to be fancy AI, but it will be AI that repeats repetitious tasks and removes the lowest value work from the economy and takes care of it. And I think our challenge as a society, as a global economy, is how do we effectively upskill to ensure that as a group, we actually increase our overall livelihood quality of life because we're no longer doing the menial labor that is now being done by either robots or software. Um, how do we upskill, particularly in the generation that feels the most pain in that shift? I think that's an interesting question to ponder. So it's, it's, it's a similar situation to when, and it may sound like a sexist comment, it's not supposed to be, but when the housewife got the washing machine and the dishwasher, um, the, we, there will be those sorts of tasks that were prior to that completely impossible. You had to do everything by hand that will then give people more time to spend on leisure and then how they, I guess the next businesses will be looking at that leisure area and finding things for, for these, these people or for people to spend their time doing probably lead to new businesses, new businesses that we just haven't thought of yet. Yeah, look, that's one view. And I think some people talk about a universal basic income as a requirement when automation takes over the world. I'm not sure where I sit on that at the moment. I, I sort of tend to think that from a macroeconomic perspective as um, entire uh, either generation or entire elements of society are, are rendered uh, less valuable because it's now automated, the skills that they were doing aren't needed. 
I think as a human race, we tend to upskill, we tend to create new problems for ourselves and those those that human capital can be redeployed. So I, I don't really see it as we're going to have a whole bunch of people sitting around with leisure time. There might be some that choose that to do that with their time, but I don't think we're going to see that um, a, a across the whole of society. I think that there'll be new and interesting challenges. I think that while the cost of some things will go down, the cost of other things will go up. Um, you know, of course, there's there's always a, a counter reaction to this. If you if you have a, a huge amount of automation or computing power going on, then the computing industry and the hardware industry and the data centers and the processors and the bandwidth and the, the fiber optics and all of those things increase in demand massively. And as soon as there's a supply constraint in that, then the price of it goes up dramatically and, and that's the next challenge to solve. So I think that... Um, I don't think there'll be a huge amount of leisure and entertainment, although I, I could be wrong. Uh, the other big trend I think we'll see is the the energy space. I think that uh, uh, renewable energy is is slowly making inroads, and I think that you know that'll be the next generational opportunity to solve that. And again, when you have effectively free energy, um, what does that do to some uh, businesses or industries or economies? That's an, again a, a, an interesting question to ponder. When you were mentioning yourself as a young man with the bowl of money, your float at the table. Um, I just wondered if that was today, would that be cryptocurrency in a computer? <laughs> Great question. Um, I never got into it myself, uh, but I would not be surprised to see uh, some young teenage kids or, or even younger uh, doing their float with their fruit bowl uh, in crypto. But in saying that, I think it still doesn't have the same universal acceptance um, as pure commerce, which is what I was learning. And when I talk about street smarts, I think as a young man, it was about modeling behavior I saw in society. So while I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family with uh, you know, a great business to model behavior, I modeled it from going to shops, seeing shopkeepers, seeing trade and commerce in action. And I think that uh, one difference to that with crypto is that you can't observe it. It's near impossible to observe other than, you know, hash codes that, that appear on the screen. Um, one, it's near instantaneous. Two, it's disintermediated, which means it's, it's so, um, it, it, the whole point of it is to be decentralized. And so there's, there's nothing to see or learn or do, um, which is why a lot of what you uh, have seen with the crypto markets is speculation. It's, it's gambling, particularly for young people, because, I mean, what are the um, fundamentals of the market? Um, where is supply and demand? Where are we trading for goods with crypto? And uh, again, a whole bunch of people will shoot me down uh, for such naive comments. But I think that young entrepreneurs are still going to mimic the commerce that they see in everyday life. And until crypto transactions replace cash or Visa or MasterCard, um, I don't think it'll have the same impact on their early education. If you had to go back to your younger self and give, your, give yourself some advice, given what you know now, what would that be? Great question. Um, I think what I've learned over time as an entrepreneur is that you're not rewarded for observing others win or to educate yourself about the greatest business models available. You're only rewarded and learn the most when you create something 
and try and fail. And, you know, we often hear stories about entrepreneurs needing to fail several times before they succeed. And of course that rings true. But my advice to my younger self would be to get in the arena, take more action more often, uh, continue to be prepared to fail because you learn more from being in the arena than from sitting outside observing it or reading books about it. You can get a base level of education, but as soon as the uh, the tires meet the road, that's when you really start learning what it's all about. And, uh, you know, that was my fruit bowl moment and uh, my golf balls and my beer kegs and all those things. They were real, uh, real world challenges, real world businesses that I was trying to uh, build and learn and made incredible number of mistakes. Uh, but they're the stories I think back on now. They're the lessons that I still carry to this day. Um, all of those other things that I sketched in the back of a notebook, who knows? I don't even know where that notebook is and I couldn't tell you what they are anymore. So uh, uh, take action and, and learn from that. Would would writing a book be something you'd be interested in doing? Great question. Uh, I, look, maybe. I, I guess the, the uh, ego in me kind of likes the idea, but of course I need to be able to create a, a vast amount of value for others. Um, nonfiction has always been my game. I, I don't even read any fiction. Uh, the little bit of entertainment I consume is usually a, a movie or a program. Uh, so I think if I wrote something, it'd be nonfiction. And in nonfiction, I don't know if there's much that hasn't been written. And so I'd be very cautious about, you know, just recycling something with with my spin on it. I don't know if that adds enough value, but um, you know, who knows? I've embarked on this uh, business of family. Uh, passion project, simply studying it on the side because it's something that I just am absolutely fascinated by. And who knows, maybe that research leads to a a new insight that hasn't been covered before as I continue to interview these wealthy families. Um, And if so, I'll uh, I'll be encouraged to share it, and that might be in the form of a book. I mean, that that really does sound perfect for a book, if if I'm honest. I don't know what you think, Tim. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 there's a gentleman I hope that we have on the podcast at some point, uh, Tony Deeden, and he's a, a, an investor based in Switzerland, and he he is all over the kind of the the multi generational family business as a as a, a preferred form of investment. Um, and he was the first person that I met that made the point that it is an awful lot more difficult to keep money than it is to create it. And as to why that is, I think it's a fascinating question, but it's one that I think we're going to keep coming back to over time, particularly in the course of the you know, future podcasts. It's, um, I think we're entering choppy waters and um, the simple business of capital preservation is not as easy as it sounds. 100% correct. I, I've seen the uh, the interview with Tony Deaton. I say the because I think he's only sort of done one long. That's the real vision one with Grant Williams. That's right. Yeah, it's a terrific, terrific piece of uh, of film. So um, everyone should definitely check that out. Uh, and, and he's an amazing investor. But I, I also resonate with uh, his philosophy. He invests in family-owned enterprises um, and often is the only outside uh, minority shareholder. Um, and from what I understand, works with uh, members, multiple generations of a family to s- help them steward an asset through. And obviously, he's benefiting from uh, from compounding capital at the same time. But very few people are let in as an outside investor uh, onto the share register of family enterprises. And I think uh, from that interview, Tony Deaton alludes to the fact that uh, he's managed to get onto a few when uh, those shares are traded very thinly or are only traded privately. And um, I think 
it's an incredible investment if you can get it. Uh, and there's certainly plenty of family enterprises that I would happily own for 100 years if I could have uh, 1% of them. So it's a great model. So it may be unfair to ask you for another media pick, but um, given that you've now given us the the knack and the interview to 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 add but do you, do you have anything that that you'd want to share as a specific media pick absolutely uh i can i can share three with you how's uh-huh. that i like to overachieve <laughs> wow so, <laughs> <laughs> so look i think there's a great book that has just come out um in 2020 uh, along the lines of this multi-generational wealth it is called borrowed from your grandchildren the Evolution of 100-Year Family Enterprises, uh, written by an author, Dennis Jaff, who has written a number of books in the space. Um, I've I've skimmed it. It looks terrific. Uh, I can already endorse it. So I think that's an interesting book, and it's fresh with a new take. Um, just, to inter- just to interrupt, sorry to just interrupt facetiously, Mike. That reminds me of a, one of Woody Allen's best lines, which is he's talking about someone draws attention to his watch. He says, this watch... My grandfather sold me this watch on his deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's a family wealth principle. (laughs) (laughs) Understand the value of a dollar. (laughs) So that looks like a, not at all. That looks like a terrific book. I can endorse that. Um, A movie that I've seen recently, and I actually, I shared this one on Twitter a couple of months back. It's called The Banker. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was on Apple's streaming, Apple Plus or Apple TV or whatever it's called. Um, terrific movie about um, a, a young man getting into the real estate game in the US, in Los Angeles, I believe it was. Um, he's a black man. He was a, a oppressed and locked out. He couldn't get finance and all this sort of thing. He ended up owning his own bank after building a real estate empire. And... Um, and it's a terrific watch, so that has to be on the list, I think. Brilliant. And and third, last but not least, I'd have to say, if I can be so selfish to say, my new uh, uh, project, The Business of Family, which is what brought us all together in the first place, has actually only existed in newsletter form uh, to date, but uh, probably by the time this interview airs, uh, we will have launched our new podcast, which is what it was always meant to be, and uh, what I'm incredibly excited about because we're actually interviewing uh, members of these uh, multi-generational businesses and families, uh, stewards, if you wish, and uh, we've already got a, a number of these interviews recorded in the can, and I can't wait to uh, to see how people react to them. So that'd have to be my last media pick. Excellent. So what will you call that so we can look out for it? It's called uh, businessoffamily.net. Right. I'll uh, put links a, to uh, it. Yeah. yeah, thank you. There's a podcast by that name and also an email newsletter. And, um, you know, if, if what we've been talking about is of interest, uh, hopefully some more of this content will will be valuable to the listeners. Superb. So, Tim. I was – well, I've been hopelessly out, out, outclassed by, by Mike's choice. So I, <laughs> I, was I was feeling the same. <laughs> I was I was going to recommend a, a game that I, I downloaded on st- the Steam platform called Retro, Retro Wave. Easy for me to say, Retro Wave, which is a classic for, – for, for those of us that are children of the 80s, it's a classic kind of blast from the past. The, I had a ZX Spectrum, which is the dawn of the personal computer. So did I. I and remember there was it. A, there was a game that my mum, the only game my mum was willing to play at the time was a game called Bomber, 
and you played a, you were in a little aircraft and it was suddenly getting lower over a cityscape and the reason she liked bomber was there's only one key b to bomb and you'd hit <laughs> you'd press b and then a little bomb would suddenly fall and it would just take out whatever was on the you know the, the flight path or the descent path of that bomb anyway it was a fairly trivial game but it was you know this is this is back in you know 1982 folks so this is what things were like back then and um so retrowave is it's it's incomparably you know superior in every way to that dimension of technology but it's in essence it's very very similar retrowave is simply you you basically start out you're just driving a sports car down a i think it's actually a straight road and you just have to avoid other traffic but but give it sort of glancing blows from time to time and it gives you points for that it's got a variety of fantastic 80s um i suppose ambient music uh, very, very of its time. And the whole thing looks like it could have been directed by Michael Mann because nearly everything's in like pink neon. Um, and it could easily have been part of his, his 80s of films like Manhunter and stuff. So anyway, that was going to be my pick, but it's still good anyway. But in the light of what we just discussed, it has to be a thing that's just been shown on BBC, uh, which you can now find on iPlayer, which is The Rise of the Murdoch Dynasty. Yes, three-parter. Uh, which is a three-parter. And it basically is... It is it is relevant to everything we've discussed over the last hour. Absolutely everything. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so mine um, is going to be a film, but just before we go to that, I think it's worth mentioning that one of the areas, specifically for you, Tim, that you're obviously still playing computer games. I've got a couple of kids who are, uh, who are in, a boy and a girl who are increasingly into uh, computer games. They've got an Xbox and they have just got into... Um, they've, we've been trying to get a Nintendo Switch for them. And if ever there was a company to invest in right now, I think that is it because, blimey, it's virtually impossible to get hold of one. And um, it, it, so when you look at how much the games cost as well compared to the traditional business of film and how much films cost and, you know, the Netflix model, etc., it's it's kind of impossible to to just sort of, you know, get a DVD and copy it and or whatever that people used to do in the old days. Um, with these games, you just can't do that. So whatever they charge for them, you, they charge and, and that's it. It's like the early days of of, uh, of of albums. You couldn't, before cassette tapes came along, that was it. You bought the album and you had that copy and, and you, can, you can only share it. And so when some of these titles are going for like 20, 30, 50, 60 pounds, um, and there is peer pressure to buy them, you can see why these companies are going to make and continue to make a lot of money and why there's so much investment in that space. So I, I thought that that was quite quite an interesting um, area, particularly with the lockdown, that obviously people will be playing more games. But my goodness to my, me. To, to my knowledge, big gaming already makes more money than, than Hollywood does anyway. It, it certainly does. It certainly does. But it, it just seems like, you know, it's a trend that's not going to go away anytime soon. So... Um, you know, and if I can, if I can add to that, that's a brilliant example of another digital intangible, right? You're yeah. buying a game as a digital download. It costs them nothing to sell one incremental unit, mm. and uh, obviously, there's there's vast infrastructure in place to allow that to happen. But they have two uh, incredible um, characteristics to that business model. One is it's a digital intangible with very very high profit margins. Two, the network effects of, as you said, there's peer pressure to buy it because you want to play the game against your friend in a multiplayer mode. So it, it naturally causes the product to spread in a viral type way if it's a great game and uh, they make for incredible businesses. Yeah. Now, 
I don't know. Again, that's public markets and too scary for me, but I assume that that's already priced in. But um, the the pandemic has certainly led to a, a spike in demand for gaming. No, no, nothing is priced. Nothing is priced into Japanese stock valuations. So J- Japan is still the the value gift that keeps on giving. Mm, <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Other other countries' stock markets are available. Yes. So in in the in the spirit of over delivering, as Mike was saying, my um, my film choice is going to be, strangely enough, a very old film that I I saw for the first time in the eighties and then decided to watch again just out of curiosity to see whether it stood the test of time. And it is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we know is an absolute classic, but I was still curious to see whether it would be the film that I remembered. And I've got to say, I was absolutely blown away by how brilliant it is. And I know that it's it should be, but sometimes films don't stand the test of time. But it's just absolutely superb. And, and all the moments that stuck in my mind were just even more powerful when I watched it again. So absolutely brilliant film. So really enjoyed that. And I, I think we've got a generation of younger listeners who m- may have never have heard heard of that film and i i think it's it's important to pass that on in the spirit of talking about families that we should talk about older films as well because there are classics that need to be watched only 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 three films in history have won the oscar for best film best director best actor best actress and best screenplay and uh, one for the cuckoo's nest is one of those three did you read the book, Tim? Yeah, the Ken Kesey book is terrific. Wow, I, th- I, I think I'd seen that. I'd seen the film before I read the book, but the book is superb and stands up. Even if you've seen the film, the book stands up on its own in its own right. W- when did you last see the film? <sighs> Probably five, six years ago. Oh, really? As recent as that? Wow. Yeah. I, I had literally hadn't seen it, you know, um, since the eighties, and I just thought I've got to, I've got to give it, I've got to give it a look, and it was, I was just blown away by it. So amazing. But- Spoiler alert, kids! You haven't seen it. He sees dead people. <laughs> He's a ghost. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Mike, before you go, are you on social media? How how do people who are listening, uh, I know you've told us about your podcast and the website for that, but uh, how else would they get in contact with you? Yes, thank you. So um, Twitter is my most active network. That's how we connected and how I connect to a lot of people these days. So my uh, profile on there is just my name, Mike Boyd. Uh, and I also have a personal website, mikeboyd.com.au, which lists all of my businesses and projects and uh, various investments and things. So uh, that tends to be a hub which connects out to all of the spokes. It's a great place to find me. Fantastic. Well, look, just wishing you all the best with your podcast. We really look forward to, to listening to that. And if you do decide to make a book of it, please let us know because um, I think it'd be absolutely fascinating to get a copy. The first thousand copies you committed to, I think, was that right? <laughs> <laughs> We're taking pre-orders now. Uh, sorry, the line's got a bit crackly, Mike. I can't hear you properly. Crank call, crank call. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I just wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on the show and being so generous with your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, Mike. Been a pleasure. All the very best. Bye now. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.